0: most frightening potential disruption to global supply chains is also one of the most difficult to prepare for or predict. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is a Supply Chain Brain podcast. We've talked a lot on this show about the many things that can go wrong in a global supply chain. Much of the discussion is centered on natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, erupting volcanoes. Then there are the human-caused disruptions, such as port strikes. But the scariest possibility that hangs over us today is the threat of terrorist attack, whether physically violent or by way of cyber assault. For the most part, such horrific events have focused mostly on people. Those, of course, are the worst possible scenarios. But there's also the potential for an attack that could disrupt the flow of goods, including items that are critical to our health and safety. How does a company prepare for such an eventuality? By definition, terrorist attacks are a surprise. We're going to get some guidance in my chat today with Justin Crump, CEO of Sibylines. He'll tell us where the biggest risks might lie, who the worst perpetrators are, and how such incidents might, to some extent at least, actually be predicted. There are definite steps that companies need to be taking to protect themselves. So here is my conversation with Justin Crump. Justin Crump, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. How are you? I'm good, and I want to talk to you generally about potential disruptions to supply chains coming up in the next year or so, but I also really want to focus in on one aspect of it that doesn't seem to get talked about that much, and that is the potential for terrorism and its impact on the supply chain. Now, specifically that, that strikes me as among the most, if not the most, unpredictable potential disruption. How do you even deal with it? It it, it isn't something that you can actually predict, is it?
1: I think you can predict it to a certain extent. Obviously, it's inherently unpredictable in precisely how it strikes, the moment at which a terrorist attack might occur. It's certainly a successful one. But I think the pattern of terrorism, the understanding of the targets, the understanding of the tactics, the approaches, what the adversary is trying to achieve with its act of terrorism is in most cases uh, eminently predictable. So, for example, for Europe, my own team, we did a study a couple of years ago. We looked at a variety of factors and to try and quantify the threat in different European cities. And that proves to be a pretty accurate piece of work in terms of the cities that were impacted, the types of tactics that were used, and the level of disruption caused. However, could we have told you that uh, the attack in Brussels would have occurred the time in the morning that it did on the day it did? Of course not, because then it, it couldn't have occurred. But we can certainly understand what was likely and therefore help organizations prepare to deal with it. So it is both unpredictable and predictable at the same time. And so much of that comes down, again, to understanding the adversary, understanding what they're seeking to achieve. But uh, the consequences, of course, are what's most important. And terrorism itself is set out to cause disruption, to cause a level of fear that's out of all proportion to the actual scale of the tactics employed. And it is interesting that it's something you focus on the supply chain point of view, because the actual act of terrorism itself, the chance of disrupting supply chain are minimal, But the fear it can cause, you know, should we travel to Barcelona? Should we go to London? Should I use the underground if I can be out of all proportion? And that's obviously what the adversary thinks to achieve. And To an extent, actually, we feed them by having that fear then of of travel, that fear of engaging in, in the areas of the world where these incidents are occurring.
0: Well, to the extent that you can make intelligent conclusions about the potential for terrorist disruptions around the world, what are the sources of information from which you're drawing?
1: A lot of it is, well, like all intelligence work, I think a lot of it is getting inside the mind of, of your opponent, the mind of the threat actor. And I'm just fortunate. That I've spent a long period of time looking at jihadist groups. And I have a background in looking at that sort of phenomenon. And I was lucky enough to work with former jihadists who spent, I spent a lot of time discussing, you know, the rationale of the movement. So I understood what they were trying to achieve. The fact that even though we sometimes regard these as crazy actors, I mean, they are working to a doctrine. They believe that, God's word has been written down, and the prophet has told them how to conduct themselves in accordance with certain features and certain events. So, yeah, their plan is written down. It's very close, actually, to the end of days. If you look at a group like Islamic State, they are effectively trying to bring about the end of days, as we recognize it from the book of Revelations, in many ways. And they believe certain things have to happen, and one of them is a Caliphate being restored on Earth, and certain conflicts are expected to occur and you see that go through a lot of the doctrine that these groups release and to their followers and a lot of the propaganda they put out. So one of the best sources is you know actually understanding the people who, who are in this and understanding what they themselves are putting out, rather than external analysis, which, of course, is inevitably tainted by being a secondary source, if you like. So it is that primary knowledge that I, I really focus on. Now obviously, that's only one example of terrorism that's just one small one, but uh, they are the dominant features at present, I think you know if we talk about terrorism, people think of jihadism. but of course, in consequence of jihadism, you have nationalism. you have right wing actors we've just banned several groups in the u you k know, who are very threatening right wing actors. We've seen the growth of nationalism in Europe at the moment and in the United States, and you know different forms of terrorism manifest, but there's always a purpose, and those groups are usually very, very clear about what they're seeking to achieve and why. And that gives you a huge head start and understanding. The rest of it is then understanding how capable they are of actually being able to follow through on their rhetoric, and that 's the area that requires most examination.
0: Well, the one common thread that seems to run through their aims is that of publicity and headlines, and as a result, it seems that all, if not most, uh, terrorist attacks have been focused on people, on passengers, on public spaces, and on buildings, and not focused exclusively to any way that I can recall on, say, commercial freight, like a container ship or a port or anything like that. Is that true?
1: It does happen. I mean, Al-Qaeda in particular was quite focused on the economic impacts, but of course, it's relatively easy to target people, and we've seen the ultimate extension of that in attacks in Europe. It gets as simple as just driving a van down the street and mowing people over as a form of attack. It's been very effective. And, of course, you can just go out to any street and find your target set, as opposed to breaking into a port or targeting a vessel. But there have been attacks on cargo and other economic assets. so an intense attacks to tax on vessels in the Suez Canal, again, to put them off using the canal to have the economic impact. We've seen air cargo be used, liver threats. So uh, we've seen, you know, printer bomb attacks that were travelling by our commercial air transport. There was a claim mm-hmm. of a similar device, very unproven, but a similar device had destroyed a cargo plane over Dubai a number of years ago, and that was all related to uh, what you may recall as the underwear bomber threat that came out of Al Qaeda in the Roman Peninsula. So you, you do see that, and even an attack on a hotel is designed to target economic needs. But terrorism is mostly about killing people because that has the most resonance. Sinking a cargo ship can actually be very disruptive, but it's not obvious. Killing three or four people actually probably doesn't have a huge disruptive impact and yet has a huge emotional impact. So, mm-hmm. as you say, everything they seek to do is out of all balance with the actual impact of the act itself. But uh, it is the emotional impact they're seeking to achieve. You just don't achieve that by breaking into a port. Now, people are getting concerned about power grids and hacking and things like that. A lot of that is fantasy compared to the actual capability of cyber, uh, threat actors involved in sort of political terrorism at present. Uh, But, again, that's playing into emotional fears of, you know, how do we live without the Internet
0: or something like that. Interesting you should bring that up, that you think a lot of the threat to the power grid is fantasy, because there has been a lot of alarms raised about the possibility that, of all types of activities, terrorist activities would seem to me to have the greatest potential for disruption. Of course, not just commercial freight, but entire societies. It wouldn't just be Internet falling away. It would be energy. It would be power. It would be water. And yet you say those are overblown threats at this point in your mind?
1: Uh, Yes. Yeah, they're certainly not keeping me up at night. The complexity of the grids is such that actually it's not as vulnerable as certain headlines would have people believe. And I think there's a fixation sometimes on certain forms of threat because it becomes self-fueling in media and other things that, you know, this is so vulnerable and Certainly, if you speak to people involved in power grids, they just roll their eyes at some of it. That's not to say that isolated incidents aren't possible, but I think that sort of national blackout scale of disaster doomsday scenario is way further off than people would believe. And certainly from terrorist groups, the level of capability of the cyber caliphate, for example, is very weak, really. Now, that's not to say you could get rogue things, but I think there are many, many, many more scenarios that I'd be more concerned about before that and even in the conventional array. I think if you look at North Korea at the moment, for example, the technology they seem to be developing does lead towards a nuclear airburst type capability which you're onto the field then of talking about electromagnetic pulse effects and that I'd certainly be more worried about the consequence of an EMP nuclear attack as being more likely than a cyber attack taking down the uh, nation's power grid. I just don't think that's a as feasible, credible a situation as as some reports would have people believe. But that's what happens with this stuff. um, There's a lot of information, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of emotion. People fixate on these horrific doomsday scenarios and often it's something much more mundane that actually affects their organization. And everyone focuses on that high impact, oh my God, end of the world type scenario. And to be honest, what's a company going to be able to do about the complete failure of the U.S. national power grid? You know, there's nothing they can do about it anyway. So to a certain extent, worry about the things that you are within your power to deal with.
0: Well, certainly the threat of cyber terrorism is real, so, possibly not on the scale that we've been discussing here. But in terms of uh, its impact on individual companies, we see that again and again. So that is something that companies do need to take seriously, I would think.
1: Well, yes, yeah, cyber threats. I mean, this cyber terrorism i think is a way off but cyber threats in general but my philosophy and i have a cyber background uh, going back a while it's the same battlefield it's a different map so cyber is just an extension of tactics for me the reason that an organization is being targeted is political it's criminal or it's out of border so all the same reasons as you might have graffiti on your building As the reason someone might hack your website the reason they might have a protest outside your building is the reason they might hack your twitter feed and you know, use that to gain publicity. The reason that they might blow up your building is the reason they might try and destroy your infrastructure. And of course, you know, that goes into the political ring most of all. And nation states are by far the most active and threatening cyber actors beyond anything. I mean beyond criminal groups, really the level of capability at state level is is phenomenal and you know linked to traditional espionage. But some very powerful players in that arena who develop that capability because they realize it gives them an advantage and it can be used to offset maybe a conventional weakness. Uh, that they have in their militaries or in their um, security policies. So I'm still most worried about state-level cyber activity, then followed by serious organized crime. But some of the serious organized crime is being harnessed by states anyway as an extension hmm. to their capabilities. So I'm much more worried about that than cyber terrorism, which tends to be pretty weak. Um, and most, terrorist cyber activity is focused on defense or propaganda. So it's often about protecting their messages, protecting their people, and, and maintaining secure communication networks.
0: Now, as companies seek to craft risk management initiatives and programs, they come down to the essential question of how much attention should they pay to predicting what's coming up versus just simply becoming resilient. Forget about predicting any particular thing, just become resilient to whatever comes down the pike. Where do you philosophically fall on that question?
1: I'm a big believer in both. I mean, we have a military maxim that no, con- uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And it's true. I think you can horrendously over plan situations. And we see this a lot in business continuity, where there's these multi volume plans that will never get taken off the shelf because they actually won't apply when, when things really go wrong. Or when things really do go wrong, no one knows where to look for them or if the, if the process wasn't set up. And aware there might be a huge uh, chorus of business continuity people shouting at me right now. But it's become this almost whole industry around writing these phenomenal plans that just won't work. So I think a resilient team is much more important. The ability to communicate in a crisis the ability to know who to call and the ability of people to work together is is what i think makes an organization resilient now where i think intelligence and kind of preempting your risk comes with that is understanding the most likely scenarios that could affect you and i think testing yourself again both to mitigate them but also because testing against those scenarios will pay you for almost anything so at least if you're used to dealing with realistic things and you test yourselves you work together you will be prepared and then when something comes that isn't quite the way you expected it well you're already most of the way there and it's relatively easy to adapt a plan that was flexible and was based around people knowing what their responsibilities were in the event of something now that said there are a lot of things you can see coming up and you can think beforehand about okay how would we deal with this and i think that's time well spent with that team is that sort of preparation of what matters and how things we put together in regard to an event And again, you probably will never get the exact crisis that you thought about and prepared for. But the act Mm -hmm. of doing that over a range of things will eventually set you up for for success, in my view. And it is about preparing the people. It's about being well-led and and dealing with it, especially in a very unpredictable world, because inherently you're not going to predict the threat that bites you.
0: But testing how? Uh, Computer simulations, virtual exercises, physical exercises, how?
1: Well, all of the above. And I'm a big fan of red teaming. So using your intelligence approach, your intelligence-led kind of approach to, to pick the most likely things that could affect you and then effectively letting someone play the adversary and coming up with a realistic threat scenario. So I've done a lot of this recently with shopping malls here in the States. And we hit them with a range of things that could happen during a very bad day at the shopping mall, uh, You know, ranging from a, a very small fire at the start of the day right through various things, maybe a suicide in a shopping center, dealing with that right up to... You know, the sort of horrific scenario of a uh, armed attackers in a crowded place you know, and how you can deal with that and how you make decisions around it. And one would hope you'd never have that sort of day in an office, but it allows them to talk through and exercise how they would test some of those things, at least conceptually. And it's that mental preparation, especially for people that are not involved normally in risk mitigation or security. It's a very useful exercise. But of course, getting a business to take, pay attention to risk and think about what they do about these almost unthinkable sometimes scenarios is very difficult because people have actual sales meetings to go to. They have an actual board meeting to attend and they don't want to spend the time. So again, I think a good intelligence process kind of helps highlight what the realistic kind of threats are, what are the things the organization should be worrying about, which perhaps it's never thought about because they've never tested themselves against something real. Everyone focuses on the obvious and sometimes you don't focus on the less obvious thing that could affect you. So again, having someone play an adversary and saying, well, actually, you know, this is is how you'll really be affected by terrorism. And it's a way you've never thought of. That's a sort of desktop exercise, I think, has a huge return on investment. Now, going into actual physical exercise and everything else, obviously, is a whole different realm, much more difficult to organize, much more difficult to get people involved in. Obviously, fantastic. And there's a reason the military spends so much time exercising, because it does prepare you. But it's costly. And most organizations won't necessarily tolerate that. I guess my final thought on this as well is that if you can exercise with other people, even if it's a desktop exercise, that is the best thing because so many of a companies' dependencies now are kind of second order. So I know a lot of companies that look at a crisis situation, they say, well, we can survive this crisis. What they don't consider is whether or not their suppliers can survive it. Or actually, what happens if one of their suppliers doesn't survive it? What is the impact back on them when suddenly your payroll processor is no longer present. So you can't pay well, your people.
0: It, it is, after all, a uh, supply chain with many partners.
1: Exactly. So. And I think a lot of companies don't test far enough. Something that the federal government's done quite well in recent years in the cyber domain is, instead of hosting its own exercise and looking at a scenario, is actually inviting people to attend the same sort of scenario and run their own exercises as a parallel within the umbrella. And I think it's a great approach. It's gradually catching on. But So rather than each organization testing itself in isolation against itself, Actually, if everyone runs the same scenario at the same time and kind of reports their their findings almost to each other, you can kind of understand how those emerging threats cascade through the system. And again, it will be that second order consequence that gets people and kind again, of human being so well placed to understand some of these dependencies, I think can play a role in making sure that all the touch points of the organisation are covered and that your partners can take part in the same scenarios. So you can only push the same issue out to them and say, hey. If the airport was shut for the following reasons and you know, we couldn't get material out of this country, how would you react? What would be the effect on you guys? And doing that with all your suppliers would be a fantastic way to, to really understand where your critical dependencies lie. And I think at present, no one knows that in most organizations. Huge amount of effort, but I think there are ways of doing it just by communicating, just getting a bit of stakeholder buy-in that would make it be more effective. We never get it perfect, but if we can get yeah. a bit better, then that will pay dividends in a
0: crisis. Well, you say most organizations haven't got this far. Uh, What you just described strikes me as a very good best practice for companies that want to go in that direction. What about companies that you feel are are particularly resilient right now? What are some other best practices that you see them engaged in that makes them more resilient than the majority of companies out there right now?
1: Yes. The other things I think are best practice really revolve around organizations testing themselves against risk in a structured manner. So what I mean by this is it's very easy to have producer capture. So a lot of organizations could probably name the top 10 things they care about as risks. And I imagine they spend most of their time in risk meetings talking about those known big problems. And cyber is a classic example. Everyone's talking about it. There was a time that they weren't or they didn't believe how big it was. So I think the ones that are prepared to go out there and say, what about this other thing? It's not quite thinking the unthinkable, but it's close to it. And I think if you have a structured way of looking at the world, it's something that obviously I heavily promote uh, from an intelligence point of view, but Examine the world systematically and say, okay, what if this happens? Actually, are we considering this factor? Again, it's something we've done a lot in the military, which actually you, you go through a process we call an estimate, where you have a list of factors when you're making a plan and you have to answer how those factors might affect you. And it's a really annoying process when you're a young officer to go through this estimate. Because it asks really awkward questions, which are just unpalatable to answer sometimes, because they show mm-hmm. the fact that your plan wasn't very good in the first place. And it, but it makes you think. And that's the purpose of it. And it makes you challenge your assumptions. So if the enemy's on a hill and there's a nice covered route up to them through a valley on the left-hand side, you want to go up that covered route. Well, if it's obvious to you, it's obvious to the enemy. So where has the enemy put their minefield? It's that sort of question. And it makes you think, actually, yeah, don't do the obvious necessarily. And therefore, you think about different factors. And I think we can do the same in the world now. So actually, almost by having a list of things you should care about and saying, does this impact us? And the answer might be, we don't know. So child labor in Cambodia might be an issue. No, I mean, it might be something you get a question says, child labour is increasing in Cambodia. Does this affect us? Yes or no? Well, most organisations might not know, and then you can ask those questions and say, okay, well, how could it be affecting us? So let's go and find out mm-hmm. if it is or not, and then you find out that maybe that your uniforms that all your people wear, the polo shirts or whatever, are actually all made in the sweatshop, and that companies get caught by that sort of thing, and the companies get caught, the ones that never ask the question.
0: It Seems like knowing what you don't know is a good start.
1: It is that older. Uh, Yeah, the known unknowns, the unknown unknowns. And it is part of it. And I think testing yourself to fill in the blanks is very important. It'll never be perfect, but again, you'll raise more things that you should track, and then it's easy to monitor them. Rather than start with all the top 10 every time and just talk about the top things, organizations tend to get caught by the high-impact, low-probability threat that comes up. So another really good best practice is actually to start with what to understand what you care about. What breaks your organization? What is a terminal failure? What's the bit where you can't deliver your goods anymore? What's the bit where you've lost all your data because your data centers are gone? And I think you can start from something like that and then you can work back. How did that scenario arise? So we did a lot of work with a bank that had data centers in India and all their backup was in India. And it was all technically resilient because they were on different power grids, different water supplies, ticked all the compliance boxes. they were quite close to each other and they were in an area that if there was a serious conflict between india and pakistan would have been overrun would be you know would not be able to operate that so there was a risk that all the data centers would get destroyed you know during that sort of an incident and therefore there would be no bank anymore obviously that's a huge problem and that's what broke the bank is not being able to operate i hasten to add that since then they put their data centers around the world different countries to get rid of that problem but again it ticked compliance boxes and now we modeled with them we said okay so it's unlikely Thankfully, there'll be a nuclear exchange between India and Pakistan, but it's possible. And, And that would break you. So how does that come about? And you can kind of model back from the outcome. So actually, we know that if Indian troops crossed a certain line in Pakistan, Pakistan had said they will go nuclear. So, okay, what leads Indian troops to having crossed that line in Pakistan? And you start working it back. And eventually, you can see, if you like, how close the clock is to midnight on a given scenario. And that allows you to kind of say, actually, how close are these things to hurting us? And what are the indicators we should look for early on that mean that actually this worst-case scenario might be coming to pass? And therefore, we need to start investing in resilience around it now. And Korea is probably the main example that a lot of firms are tracking at the moment. The consequence is obviously, is it going to break out into a horrible conflict in the region? And therefore, how close are we to midnight on that conflict? It's not inevitable it will occur, so we should still be doing business in South Korea and in Japan and in China, obviously, but everyone's getting worried about it. So it's tracking those things that give you that indicator that it's now on a certain track that could break the organization, and that's the time to start spending money. So I'm a big fan of that sort of approach as well. And I think the final thing we see organizations do well is challenging themselves, and that's that's
0: the key one. Well, Justin Crump, I want to thank you so much for helping us to understand the threat out there from terrorism and other aspects of risk management programs and some very valuable tips on how companies might protect themselves against those threats. Thank you very much, Justin Crump, CEO of Civiline. Thanks for being with us.
1: It's a huge pleasure, Bob. Thank you for having us.
0: That was my conversation with Justin Crump of Civiline email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.